This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to Session 21, Living by the Spirit, from the series Ruach HaKodesh, Holy Spirit. This session was recorded live at Beit Sur Fellowship. We are now in the final session of the series, and what I want to do, I want to start with a uh, a brief review of the last seven sessions. So we're not only concluding the series, we're also concluding uh, part four of the series. So I just want to kind of give a brief rundown on everything from session 14 to session 20 that we've already... So, well, yeah, we'll start with that review. Then we'll talk about spirituality and holiness, uh, about prayer, God's word, God's power and presence in our lives, and we'll conclude with that. Uh, by way of review, back in session 14, we were looking at the theology of the Holy Spirit, or trying to answer the question of who or what is the Holy Spirit. And these were some of our conclusions. The Holy Spirit is fully God, but in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit is distinct from God the Father. The Holy Spirit is God's presence within us. The Holy Spirit mediates between us and God through prayer. And the Holy Spirit glorifies Yeshua. So then in session 15, we talked about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. So we saw how baptism in the Spirit is simply another way of saying filled with the Spirit. And there was a historical event in the book of Acts in which the Kehillah received the Spirit. And we see this happening in stages in Acts chapter, uh, tw- Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, uh, going to, out to the Samaritans, Acts chapter 10, going out to the Gentiles. All of us as believers participate in that event through faith in Messiah. The Spirit filling us is not just a one-time event, but part of a lifelong journey. And the Spirit works in us to draw us to Messiah and make us more like Messiah. Then in session 15, we talked about flesh versus spirit. Sorry, session 16. this, and we saw there are places, in, particularly in Paul's letters, where these two terms are contrasted. Um, don't walk in the flesh, walk in the spirit. There's this battle between the flesh and the spirit. So the battle between flesh and spirit is a battle between me, my flesh, and God, the Holy Spirit. It's not a battle between two different aspects of my own being, my flesh versus my spirit. No, it's my flesh versus God's spirit. It's me versus God. The Bible never denigrates our physical existence, but rather summons us to serve God with our entire being. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to have victory over sin, even though this victory will never be complete in this life. So we looked at Romans chapter 7 and the uh, wretched man... (laughs) as Paul describes himself. What's Paul talking about there? Is Paul describing the life of a mature believer? Is he describing the life of an unbeliever? Is he describing um, the life of an immature believer? And 
essentially, you know, the way that a lot of theologies hinge on how you interpret that, or vice versa, a lot of interpretations hinge on what theology you hold to uh, as to how it works. So, yeah, basically, we're never going to be done fighting sin in this life, but that doesn't mean that we should resign ourselves to a losing battle with sin either. Uh, through the Holy Spirit, we're called to have victory over sin, even though that victory will never be fully complete in this life. In session 17, we did a similar look at places in the Bible that contrast letter and spirit, letter versus the spirit. And there are three places in Paul's writings in particular that use this uh, contrast between letter and spirit. And so we concluded that when Paul contrasts letter and spirit, he is contrasting two different ways of approaching Torah. He's not contrasting Torah and the Spirit. Letter and Spirit are two different ways of approaching the same Torah. Our intellect is just as much the domain of the Spirit as other aspects of our being. So, uh, related to this idea of letter versus Spirit, some people get the idea that following the Holy Spirit is somehow detached from your intellect, right? It's a non-intellectual thing to, to walk in the Holy Spirit or to follow the Holy Spirit. Uh, but as we saw, God's calling us to serve him with our whole being, right? And our intellect just as much. God calls us to follow his commandments out of humble obedience to him. So as opposed to some definitions of legalism, legalism does not mean following rules. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says there's anything wrong with following rules. In fact, the Bible contains quite a few rules and expects us to follow them. And that's not legalism. Um, and when we're following God out of humble obedience to him, uh, then those rules are a good thing. They're, they protect us and they're for our good. In session 18, we talked about the power of the Spirit. So a major role of the Holy Spirit is to empower us in God's service. Now, for some people, that phrase, power of the Holy Spirit, brings to mind signs and wonders, as variously defined. Uh, but according to Scripture, signs and wonders are no basis for faith. We see this in the example of Israel, uh, in the wilderness. They saw all of God's signs and wonders, and yet they still worshiped the golden calf, or rebelled against him, or all these different things, right? So, signs and wonders alone are no basis for true faith, and in fact, in the end times, the descriptions of signs and wonders we read are, number one, false signs and wonders performed by the beast and the false prophet and things like that, uh, and false prophets coming and performing signs in order to try and deceive. And number two, the other kind of signs and wonders we read about are these cosmic displays that God does, right? Blood, fire, and billows of smoke, the sun being turned to darkness, the moon to blood, these kinds of signs and wonders that God performs. Um, we don't specifically read about believers performing signs and wonders in the last days. That doesn't mean it won't happen, it's just that's not the focus of end-time prophecy. 
And another conclusion we reached is that the spirit is not a power that we can tap into for our own purposes. We don't use God's power. God's power uses us. So we need the Holy Spirit to empower us, but it's not so that we can do what we want. It's so that he can do what he wants through us. And then in session 19, we talked about spiritual warfare. And some of the things we saw in that session are that the apostolic scriptures or the New Testament uses a military metaphor to describe certain aspects of our lives as believers. We have a real enemy that we are combating, and there are evil spiritual forces that are opposed to us as followers of Yeshua. The Bible speaks of spiritual beings that represent the various nations and political or military forces on earth. Demons are real, but we should not overemphasize them. Symbolic actions and rituals help us by reminding us, shaping our habits, and making that which is abstract more tangible. But they have no inherent power in themselves, these symbolic actions and rituals, right? And we talked about how, you know, even something like prayer, praying before you eat, that's a ritual or a... a, a it's a habit that you have, right? A ritual habit. We don't like to use the term ritual to describe it sometimes because ritual can have a negative connotation, but here I'm using it in its positive sense, right? Something that we do uh, repeatedly that's a, a good habit. We as believers face opposition on three fronts, the world, the devil, and the flesh. And so our warfare uh, is both internal, spiritual warfare is both internal, choosing to follow God at every given moment, and external, preaching the gospel, standing against evil and injustice in the world, combating ungodly ideologies. These are all part of our spiritual warfare. Then in the last session, session 20, uh, we looked at revival. And we saw that a revival is a God-empowered, widespread move of repentance and renewal. Those who come to faith during revival usually remain strong believers the rest of their lives. A key component of true revival is repentance, turning away from sin. The fruit of true revival is transformed lives. And... Scripture predicts an end-time revival in which God will pour out his spirit on all Israel just prior to Yeshua's return. Okay, so for today I want to wrap things up and talk about what does it mean to live by the spirit? Because by the end of this series we should be able to answer that question, right? And I mean, this is really grasping at what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to, to live our spiritual lives as followers of Yeshua, right? Paul uses uh, this and similar phrases in his letters. He talks about living by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13, Galatians 5, 25. Walking by the Spirit or walking according to the Spirit, Romans 8, 4, Galatians 5, 16. Keeping in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5.25. So these are all phrases, I believe he's using these more or less interchangeably, this uh, idea of 
living and walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, right? It's uh, uh, in Hebrew, your walk is a common metaphor for your life, right? Uh, your life is like a journey from point A to point B, and you're walking on this path. And our job as believers is to have that path in, in line with the Spirit. We're walking, living in accordance with the Spirit and His purposes. So what exactly does that mean? Well, I think it's, it's quite simple, that living by the Spirit means simply to walk in holiness and obedience. Um, here's a quote. Uh, for, this is actually from the Anchor Bible Dictionary, which uh, sometimes is a bit liberal, so you can't. You have to take things with a grain of salt that they say. But I thought this was a, a decent summary of some of this stuff. In Pauline pneumatology, which means study of the Holy Spirit, uh, the gift of pneuma, pnevma, is paralleled by a pledge to walk according to the Spirit, meaning you, you receive the Holy Spirit, your reception of the Spirit comes with your pledge to walk according to the Spirit, right? It's not just something we, we receive and then we, we don't give in return. It's, it's a two-way thing, right? So receiving the gift of Pnevma or Spirit is paralleled by a pledge to walk according to the Spirit, demonstrating a link between Spirit and ethic, right? So between... Uh, spirituality, and the way you walk, your behavior, your, your morality and actions. 1 Corinthians 6.11 links liberation from a sinful past to orientation toward a new life. In 1 Thessalonians 4.8, the gift of Pnevma is related to the obligation of holiness. Physical existence is the locus of the spirit, 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19, and leaves no room for immorality. Galatians 5, 16-25 and Romans 8, 1-17 define the Christian life as walking in or according to the Spirit. So, in other words, as followers of Yeshua who are filled with his Spirit, spirituality and ethics go hand in hand. Our spirituality is not divorced from upright moral character and behavior. Living by the Spirit is not opposed to Torah to keeping Torah, right? It doesn't cancel rules and standards of righteousness. The most basic way for us to be spiritual is to obey God. If you want to be more spiritual, if you want to keep in step with the Spirit, obedience. That's the most basic way to do it, right? Another way of putting it is that the Holy Spirit helps us to be holy, Right? Uh, that's, that's his role. Uh, he's, in Hebrew, the Ruach HaKodesh literally means the spirit of holiness. He's the spirit that helps us to be holy. So, um, by way of review, uh, we did talk about this in a previous session a bit, but there are different models of spirituality, right? And, like I said, these affect the way you interpret Romans chapter 7, for example, where Paul describes his, this struggle with sin and talks about being this wretched man, that what, what do I do? I don't do what I want to do. What I want to do, I don't do. And uh, how will I be delivered from this body of death? So, the three models, and these are identified by J.I. Packer. He 
gives them these labels. There's the Augustinian model, which is essentially reformed theology or, or Calvinism. Uh, and in that view, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is describing his current life as a mature believer. Right? So uh, the idea is that when Romans 7 describes, you know, Paul describes himself struggling with sin, that's, that's the normal experience of all believers. We all struggle with sin like that. That's the Augustinian model of spirituality. Uh, the Wesleyan model, uh, which is also known as Christian perfectionism, uh, says no. You know, you, you read Romans 7, and the, and the description is, is so negative. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not capable of doing anything good. That's not talking about a believer. That's talking about an unbeliever. As believers, we're not supposed to be sinning anymore. And, you know, some take it to the extreme that a true mature believer will never sin. And if you sin, then, oh, I guess you're not a true mature believer anymore and you need to get your act together to become a true mature believer. Uh, the idea that we can have decisive and complete victory over sin in this life. Uh, that's an extreme version of the, the Wesleyan model. But, um, uh... Yeah, all of them have in common uh, in this second category the idea that we can have victory over sin. Whether it's complete or whether it's provisional or whatever it may be, that's still the goal that we're shooting for. And so when Paul says, wretched man that I am, he's describing the way he was before he was a believer. Or he's describing the way an unbeliever might, might put it. The third model is the Keswick model which uh, set, sees a um, two-stage step kind of uh, thing where you can be a believer but still be struggling with sin. But a mature believer gets past that. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul is describing the situation of someone who is not yet a mature, spirit-filled believer. In the Keswick model of spirituality, you basically, the advice is to stop trying to be sanctified and just let Messiah live through you. Our role is passive. Now, the problem with that, in my view, is that this means you stop putting effort into changing. And I think a, a better model is to say that our sanctification, our holiness, our walking in holiness is a combined effort. We do our part, which is admittedly insufficient. And God does his part, right? But we can't just sit back and expect God to do it all for us. We have to do our best and ask God to take care of the rest. Related to this is the idea of how, how is this process worked out in, over the course of one's life, right? Uh, we... In our Western culture, we like things now. We like fast food. Uh, we, we want everything to happen in an instantaneous event. We want to achieve sp spiritual maturity as an event. Right? You, you know, if you want to be able to go to that conference, read that book, take this program, and bam, now you're a spiritual Christian. You don't have to worry about it anymore. 
But God usually works in us through processes rather than events. And discipleship is a process, not an event. So becoming like Yeshua, becoming sanctified, growing in holiness, gaining victory over our sinful nature, these are long-term processes that span our entire lives. It's not something that happens once and for all, and then you can go on and do something else. And I have argued in other sessions as well, being filled with the Spirit is also an ongoing process. It's not a one-time event, right? We're leaky vessels. We need repeated infillings of the Holy Spirit. And I think, um, well, there is, it's clear that as believers, when you accept Yeshua, you receive the Spirit of Messiah in your heart, right? We receive the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean we're always walking in the Spirit's fullness, and we need to repeatedly come to him and seek his, his filling and his empowerment in our lives. Another thing that, and I think we brought this up in another session, there's an interesting interplay between our prerogative and God's prerogative in all this, right? We talked a bit about this in Revival uh, in the last session, but I think it's true in regards to our personal lives as well as believers, right? There's a sense in which, you know, in John chapter 3, Yeshua says, the wind blows, the pnevma, the spirit, wind, blows wherever it pleases. We can't control the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Paul says that the manifestations, if we want to use that term, the um, the uh, pneumatica, these uh, spiritual things like uh, prophecy and speaking in tongues and helps and, and service and all these different things, uh, Paul reframes them as charismata, gifts, right? These are gifts that are bestowed as opposed to spiritual things that we possess and display, right? These are gifts from God. So this is, it's God's prerogative to um, bring this about. But on the other hand, the spirit in us, it does not drive us to be out of control, right? We still have our own autonomy as individuals. Uh, we're not to be characterized by being swept away like the pagans, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 2. And he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, uh, for, uh, second, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 32. So there's still a sense of, of our, um, our own autonomy and control um, in this whole process, right? On the one hand, the Holy Spirit is God's prerogative, and we can't conjure it up. We, we can't make revival happen. We can't, we can't do any of these things. Uh, but on the other hand, that doesn't mean we have no responsibility. So, you, you know, the other extreme is to say that, well, we have the Holy Spirit by default, and there's nothing that we're supposed to do. There's nothing that we can do. It's, it's God's, you know, nothing we can do can delay or uh, hasten God's work in our lives or in anyone else's lives. The scriptures don't really speak that way, though. The scriptures talk about our choices and and um, our responsibilities, right? In Deuteronomy, God says, Moses tells Israel, choose life. He doesn't say, you know, God's going to make the choice, so you just sit back and let him do it all. <laughs> um, we still have a responsibility in all this, right? 
And I believe that one of our responsibilities is to hunger for more of him and to be obedient and submissive to him, right? And we do our best and we look to him to supply the rest. You know, sometimes I've wished and prayed that God's spirit would just take over my body and subdue my own will and inclinations to the point where I'm no longer in control of myself and he's in complete control. And I think maybe a lot of us are attracted to something like that. Like we wish, you know, stop letting me make my own decisions, God, and just just do it all for me. I don't want to have to do this anymore. <laughs> but God doesn't work that way. He doesn't want robots, right? For some reason, he wants to work with messy flesh and blood human beings. And no matter how spirit-filled we get, we always retain our individuality and free will. But that's the thing, is when the Spirit fills us, he makes us to be the best, he makes me the best me I could be, right? Um, he takes the personality, that that spark of the image of God that is in you as a human, and he makes that the best that it can be. And so, our spiritual life is a, our, our holiness, our spirituality, it's a cooperative effort. We're working with God as we work towards sanctification. All right, I want to talk about prayer. And uh, most of the rest of this session will be on prayer, and then we'll touch on a few other things as we close. But I think prayer and the Holy Spirit are very integrally linked. There's, there's something very significant about the role of prayer in relation to the Holy Spirit. Paul uh, in Ephesians 6.18 and also in Jude verse 20, um, we're exhorted to pray in the Spirit or to pray in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and there's other passages that speak of the Holy Spirit as a spirit that brings about prayer, a spirit of prayer. Uh, in Zechariah 12 verse 10, which we looked at last time, God describes the spirit being poured out on end-time Israel as a spirit of grace and supplications, right? This is a spirit that prompts God's people to come before him in humility and brokenness and in prayer, right? Also in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, Paul says the spirit in our hearts causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, Right? the spirit of sonship, and there's multiple significances of that. It's, God's spirit is a seal of our adoption as, as sons, but it's also drawing us to prayer, drawing us towards God in prayer. So what does it mean to pray in the spirit? Is that any different from normal prayer? Is, there, is, it, is it different to just pray and then to pray in the Spirit? Are those two different things? Uh, is praying in the Spirit, uh, some people might say, oh, praying in the Spirit, that's talking about speaking in tongues. Um, you can go back to our long multi-part session on tongues if you want to argue that. Uh, I think that Praying in the Spirit is different than praying without the Spirit. And I think everyone would be able to agree with that. The difference between 
trying to pray to God without his Holy Spirit empowering you in prayer and praying to God with that empowerment is dramatically different. You know, we don't always talk about our personal prayer lives a lot. Uh, maybe, you know, it's something private. We don't like to... Uh, something that's just between me and God, right? You don't want to invade on people's private space like that. But I do think it's important for us to talk about this sometimes because this is really where the rubber meets the road uh, when it comes to living by the Spirit. Uh, Andrew Murray famously said that prayer is the index measure of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The quality of our prayer life is a very simple and uh, accessible indication of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. And so, you know, we should ask ourselves, how, how would I rate my prayer life right now on a scale of 1 to 10? How am I doing? Uh, you know, there's multiple categories we could talk about. Our desire. How, how, how is our desire for prayer? Do we have a strong desire? Uh, are we yearning to get away to spend time with God? Or do we have no desire? Do we find it boring? Um, how's our discipline in prayer? <laughs> you know, uh, do we have time in our schedule for prayer? Uh, are we consistent about that? Or is it something that often gets pushed aside? Uh, how, how about the quality of our prayer? Does it tend to be perfunctory or constantly distracted? Or is it passionate, vibrant, and engaging? How about the content of our prayer? Are we praying mostly about ourselves? Uh, or are we using our prayer time to praise God and to intercede on behalf of others. Wesley Duell um, says that the prayer is the main channel for the flow of the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we've talked about in our sessions on the Holy Spirit in the Tanakh how the word prophet or the action of prophesying is intrinsically connected with the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, you look at the first example of a prophet, of the term prophet in Scripture, and it's talking about Abraham. God tells Abimelech and his household, uh, after they've been cursed because Abimelech took Sarah, Abraham's wife, God says, um, Abraham is a prophet, and he will pray for you. And so the first instance of the word prophet, a prophet is identified as someone who prays. And interesting, in Luke chapter 2, verse 37, we read this description of Anna the prophetess, that she's constantly in the temple praying. And so she wasn't, it identifies her as a prophetess, but she wasn't going out preaching and delivering these prophetic sermons all over the place. She was praying. She was spending her, her prophetic activity was being in the temple praying. Leonard Ravenhill, in his book Revival Praying, he says, True prayer is spirit-born. True prayer is praying, quote, in the Holy Ghost. Those filled with the Spirit are filled with prayer. 
There is something very questionable and unbiblical about those who claim a baptism of the Spirit and yet know nothing of extended periods of prayer. Isaiah, or sorry, in, in the book of Psalms, I want to look at this one verse, Psalm 130, begins with these words. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Uh, there is a Jewish commentary that I saw, and unfortunately I don't remember where I found this, but uh, it was describing this verse as a uh, example of what it means to truly pray with with deep meaning. And so this phrase, out of the depths, it took that to mean out of the depths of my soul. Out of the depths of my soul, I cried to you. That means we should cry out to God with all our heart. Um, have you ever heard the concept of a prayer burden? The idea that sometimes the Holy Spirit will impress on our hearts something to pray about, right? Uh, and and the Holy Spirit's power is often accompanied by deep prayer burdens. So, one of the things that, you know, if, if we don't have these prayer burdens, we should pray and ask God to give us an assignment, right? Give us something that you want us to pray about. What is, what is there that is on your heart right now that I need to pray? And I personally, I've found when I have a prayer burden and I am praying out of that, that those times of prayer are some of the most powerful times of prayer. And there's something about God giving you an assignment like that. And when he does, he always empowers you in that assignment. Here's a, a lengthy quote from Wesley Duell. He says, The Holy Spirit breathes the spirit of prayer within you. Power in prayer comes from his empowering within. He will not continue to empower for prayer unless you use that power in prayer. Prayer weakness usually results from spiritual weakness and itself contributes to spiritual weakness. Andrew Murray called prayer the index measure of the Spirit's work in, our, in us. Only those who are spirit-filled can repeatedly prevail in mighty, in, mightily in prayer. When the Spirit works in you only feebly, then your prayer life will be weak and powerless. The more mightily the Spirit works within you, the more mighty will be the results of your praying. The main reason for prayerlessness is that the Spirit indwells you only minimally, almost nominally, and not in his fullness. God can work through your prayers only as he is Lord, truly Lord of your praying, that lordship is exercised entirely by the Holy Spirit. Prayer vision is spirit-given vision. Prayer hunger is spirit-given hunger. And prayer power is the mighty power of the Spirit pouring through your whole spiritual being. R.A. Torrey has this uh, good quote about what how we define faith. <laughs> he wrote this in the year 1900. Uh, trying to believe something that you want to believe is not faith. In no case does real faith come by simply determining that you're going to get the thing that you want to get. I think that's a good corrective because sometimes that's what people think faith is. Faith is just determining, oh, this is going to happen, I'm going to get it, right? But that's not, that's not what true faith is. And so... Uh, 
related to that is, is this quote from James McConkie. He says, To know the will of God, we must will the will of God. Self-will is the surest and densest veil which hangs between us and the knowledge of God's will. We will be amazed to discover how much of our prayer life is an effort to win God over to assent to and carry out our own will rather than asking according to his will. And I think that's key. And that's, that's where real faith comes in. I mean, we have faith that God will perform his will, right? We don't have faith that God will perform our will, do what we want him to do. And so that's where it's key that we must be seeking to know the will of God, right? And to be able to pray towards that. Uh, here's another quote from Wesley Duell. I don't have it on the screen, but he says, The great need of our world, our nation, and our churches is people who know how to prevail in prayer. Moments of pious wishes blandly expressed to God once or twice a day will bring little change on earth or among the people. Kind thoughts expressed to him in five or six sentences after reading a paragraph or two of mildly religious sentiments once a day from some devotional writing will not bring the kingdom of God to earth or shake the gates of hell and repel the attacks of the evil one on our culture and our civilization. Results, not beautiful words, are the test of prevailing prayer. Results, not mere sanctimonious devotional moments, are the hallmark of the true intercessor. We need great answers to prayer, changed lives and situations, answers that bear upon them the stamp of the divine. We need mighty demonstrations of the reality and concern of God and of his activity and power, which will force the world to recognize that God is truly God, that God is sovereign, and that God is involved in his world today. We need mighty answers to prayer that will bring new life to the church and new strength, faith, and courage to faint believers, that will silence, dumbfound, and convict evil men, that will thwart, defeat, and drive back the assaults of Satan. The vast majority of Christians know very little about prevailing prayer, wrestling in prayer, or prayer warfare. We have seen too few demonstrations of prevailing prayer. We have known too few prayer warriors who had intercessory power with God and with people. We have met too few Elijah-type intercessors who were just like us, yet whose prayer lives were powerful and effective, quoting James 5, 16-18. In another place, he writes, The Holy Spirit does not tap you on the shoulder each morning, lift you out of bed, and place you on your knees. He does not rearrange your schedule so you will have time for adequate prayer. You will have to discipline yourself. You will have to choose to have a life of prayer, a disciplined habit of prayer. If you cannot even do that much, don't talk about taking up your cross and following Jesus. Perhaps you are following him at a distance like Peter before he denied his Lord. Matthew twenty six fifty eight. In the Jewish understanding of prayer, prayer is defined as the service of the heart. In the Torah, God says, you shall serve God with all your heart. Well, what does it mean to serve God with your heart? And uh, a traditional Jewish response is that that's talking about prayer. Prayer is serving God with our heart. So it it's not uh, explicitly commanded in the Torah to pray, although in other places in the Bible it is. And Yeshua um, talks about, you know, when you pray, not if you pray. Um, and... But I think that this is 
essential component of what it means to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. Okay, so another aspect of what it means to walk in step with the Spirit, I think, is being immersed in God's Word. Ephesians 6, 17, Hebrews 4, 12 talks about the sword of the Spirit, right? Uh, the, the How God's Word is like a sword, living and active. And there's a sense in which there's two-way communication, right? Like, we don't just pray and, and God listens and never responds. God does speak to us. And uh, the most basic way he speaks to us is through his word. So in concert with a healthy prayer life, that we have to have a healthy habit of immersing ourselves and feeding on God's word. There's a tradition based on when the Israelites left Egypt, in Exodus 15, uh, verse 22, this is right after they crossed the Red Sea. They saw this amazing display of God's power at the Red Sea. And they go on, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And it goes on. Uh, some rabbis understood this verse to be talking about, this is what happens when we go too long without Torah, without reading Torah, without reading God's word. Three days, and you're set to rebel against God that this is this is as important to us as water, having a diet of reading God's word. And so it was because of that that uh, Judaism actually instituted every uh, uh, three times a week, not just on Shabbat, but three times a week they have a public reading of the Torah in the synagogue. Um, they do a smaller portion on, uh, I believe it's uh, Mondays and Thursdays, that they do that. And the idea is that you don't want to ever have three days in a row without the reading of Scripture. So even someone who is illiterate and can't read for themselves can go to synagogue and hear the Word of God at least once. Uh, you know, so there's never three days without it, right? And that's, that's a fascinating concept, right? And I think that is true. I mean, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? So, God's word is precious to us, and it is life-giving to us. And we need, to, uh, we need to have these repeated encounters. It's not enough to just hear the word of God once a week. We need to be immersed more often than that. It's like that kid's song. Don't read your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple, right? Uh, kids know this stuff. <laughs> Somehow we try to make it really complicated. <laughs> Another thing I want to touch on before we conclude, God's presence and power in our lives. Uh, J.I. Packer comments that the one of the Spirit's primary roles is mediating Messiah's presence. 
right? Yeshua said, it's better for you that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come, right? Because when Yeshua was on earth, he could only be in one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit is able to bring Yeshua's presence to all places at the same time, right? And so the Holy Spirit is the presence of Yeshua in our midst. When Yeshua says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, the manner in which he is with us right now is through his Spirit. When we ask Yeshua to come into our hearts, it's his Spirit that comes into our hearts. And we need him. We need his presence among us. We need the Holy Spirit in anything we're doing to try and serve God, because we can't do it on our own. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. I want to just read a, a quote from another Wesley Duell book. He says, Christian leadership demands our spiritual best and more. To our best must be added his supernatural enabling touch. We must offer our best, then we must look to God to add his, his holy fire. Our best is never enough. We constantly need God's extra touch. We need his fire. In the service of God, we need more than ability and skill. We need the manifest presence of God, the consciousness and evidence of God's special touch upon us. We rely not on our knowledge, training, and experience, but on God's transforming addition to our highest and best. Spurgeon insisted, it is extraordinary spiritual unction, not extraordinary intellectual power that we need. We are not satisfied with being faithful. We deeply desire the special awareness of God's blessing upon our faithfulness. We are not satisfied to work hard. We look to God for his empowering upon our earnest efforts. We seek for something more than busyness. We seek the evidence that God uses us. God created you to be filled with and anointed by his spirit. That fullness makes you pers your personality complete enables you to be Christ-like and radiant with God's presence and your service to be spirit-guided, spirit-empowered, and used to capacity by God. A healthy Christian, As a healthy Christian, you can never be satisfied without that indwelling fullness, that divinely imparted Christ-likeness, and that transforming enabling that makes you aware that God is using you for his purpose and glory. No Christian leader can be continuously and completely satisfied in his or her ministry without that divine enabling, the glow, the fire, and the power of the Spirit. It must be present in us and active through us. So I like how Wesley Duell emphasizes that it's not my intellect and abilities versus the Spirit, that I need to, to subdue that. I need to not try and let the Spirit do it. No, he says, you do your best. Says uh, another place, he says, don't ask God to anoint your second best, <laughs> right? We want, we need to do our best for God, but recognize that even that is not enough. We need his presence and his power in our lives. To conclude, you know, we can work like crazy and feel like we're getting nowhere, but when God's hand is on something, it takes little human effort to accomplish great things. We saw that in our session on revival, that we can't always assume that God's going to do that, right? We can't always uh, 
presume on God's empowerment or God's presence, but it does behoove us to seek God's face in any endeavor and seek his blessing and favor on our efforts. We offer God our best, knowing full well that our best is not enough. We submit ourselves to him, and he gets the credit. The spotlight is on Yeshua. It's not on us. And we'll conclude with that. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible for the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.